Good morning, Graham Church. Thanks for, uh, thanks for braving the elements to be with us together this morning. Uh, when I was growing up, my church, my pastor would always say on mornings like this, when there was just a few of us there, that uh, he would call us God's frozen chosen. And so thank you for, for being the frozen chosen with me this morning. Our title of our message this morning is Remember. Remember. And as you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Kentuckian agrarian writer Wendell Berry, in his newest addition to the fictional Port Williams series titled How It Went, dedicates the book to his son, who, according to the inscription, has defined his father's work as an author simply as how to remember and why. I would describe Paul's intention in our passage, and thereby my own aim, similarly this morning as perhaps what to remember and why. What to remember and why. Memory is a powerful thing. In the Old Testament, the Israelites had many religious practices, such as the Passover or the Day of Atonement. Memory is a powerful thing. These rituals were designed to remind Israel of God's faithfulness and Israel's need for God. In the New Testament, we have the Lord's Supper, which Christ instructed us to do in remembrance of Him. This liturgical practice is less so that we don't forget the fact that Christ died and was raised for our sins, but it's to orient our lives and to remind us regularly of the grace we have received through faith, and of our constant need of grace. In 2 Timothy, this is Paul's last letter. He's going to be executed soon. And as he instructs Timothy in the faith, the message he wishes to convey is that following Jesus is worth it. And in our passage here, he unpacks some reasons why he doesn't have any regrets about the life he's chosen to follow Christ with, and what he wants to make sure that Timothy remembers. So let's read verses 8 through 13. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. So what's the first thing that Paul wants Timothy to remember? First, remember what Christ has done. Remember what Christ has done. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Sometimes we can speak of remembrance as simply maintaining a cognitive memory. As if to say, just don't forget about the fact that this happens. But when Paul says here to remember Jesus Christ, he's saying, keep Christ always at the forefront of your mind. And let that reality drive your behavior. We read again and again and again, over 50 times actually, 
throughout the Old Testament where God gives his people a mission or a task or comforts them in the face of coming adversity, and he uses this phrase or some version of it. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. We see it in Leviticus and Deuteronomy intermixed with the delivery of the law throughout Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and probably most impactfully when Jeremiah is instructed to buy a field. And the setting for that is he knows, God's telling him in Jeremiah 32, that, that the Babylonians are coming, that Israel's going to be taken away into captivity. But still, in spite of that, he tells Jeremiah, buy some land. Land's probably not the, the most uh, smartest investment at a time like that. And yet he says, he uses this phrase, this phrase of, I'm the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, to remind Jeremiah that he will remain faithful to his promise to his people. God will. And he will bring his people back to the promised land. He, he will keep his promises so you can invest in this land because you're going to be coming back to it. Your descendants will be coming back to it. I'll keep my covenant. These reminders orient God's people to who God is by reminding them of what God has done. In our text last week, Paul is asking Timothy to make some hard decisions and to make a costly choice. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And Paul is kind of uh, the, showing him what the future looks like as a soldier of Jesus Christ in prison awaiting death. This portion of the passage is meant to shore up Timothy against any doubt he might have as he read those words asking him to do hard things for the sake of the gospel. He, he says share in this suffering. The phrases employed in verse 8 to describe Christ are meant to direct the hearers, both Timothy and ourselves, to find comfort and strength in the faithfulness of God. The first descriptor of Christ used is risen from the dead. He is risen from the dead. And this is similar to what God says to Jeremiah. God says to Jeremiah, you don't need to fear a world power taking you into captivity because I've already demonstrated with Egypt that I can bring my people out of slavery from the strongest empire on earth. Likewise, Christians, we do not need to fear death because Christ has already demonstrated that he can defeat death. Christ's resurrection guarantees that death has lost its sting and the grave will not have victory over those who are in Christ. Paul writes elsewhere in Romans 6, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once and for all. If we share in his death, we will share in his conquering of death. The very fact that Christ is risen is the down payment on our own resurrection. 
when you're looking for a contractor to build yourself a home, or perhaps to just remodel a portion of your current home, you want to see what they've done before, right? You want to see some pictures. You want to go talk to some people who've had this work done and see what the experience was like. Make sure that it's going to look the way that, that we agreed that it would look. Because if you're going to trust a person or a company with a sizable investment, you want to make sure that they've done this kind of thing before. You want to make sure you can trust them. God here is showing us his resume. The same God who is faithful to raise Christ from the dead is the same God who promises to do the same thing for us. So, what does that mean? It means we ought not to live like this life is all that there is. It's all that we have. We ought not to fear men who can only kill the body. Because the body can be resurrected. So we use the fact that Christ has conquered death to describe Christ in this gospel. The second descriptor he uses is that Christ is the offspring of David. The offspring of David. Why does Paul mention this? Because it's another section on the resume of God's faithfulness. Christ as an offspring of David is the fulfillment of an ancient promise. As David was nearing the end of his reign, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says to him, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Then in Isaiah chapter 9, this, that, that prophecy gets elaborated on more. And we read this passage often during Advent. We read, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government of peace there will be no end. And where does he sit? On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You can trust God to keep his promises. It may not always be exactly how you envisioned. You may walk into the new house and say, you know, this is that square footage that we talked about. It just it doesn't, doesn't exactly feel how I, I thought it was going to feel. But you know, the religious leaders of Jesus' day couldn't believe, they couldn't understand that the promised Messiah would be so uninterested in politics. They couldn't believe that he would undermine their obsession with the letter of the law. God is always going to deliver and it will always be beautiful. It may just take us some time to see it. So, Remember what Christ has done. Remember what Christ has done. Now, secondly, remember how Christ is at work. Verse 9 and 10. Paul says, My gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound. Paul contrasts his own personal situation with how God is at work in the world through the word. Through the word. He says, I am bound, but the word of God is not bound. What's he referring to when he says the word of God? 
1 Peter chapter 1 describes the word in the following way. He says, since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word, what is it? This word is the good news that was preached to you. Simply, the word of God is the gospel. It's the good news. Now, chains, what do they do? They restrain you. They restrain you. They limit you. They stop your movement. They render the wearer powerless. This cannot happen to God's word. That is the message of God, the gospel. It remains on the move and it remains powerful. Paul contrasts his own limitations in his state of oppression, the obstacles that he has with the word which remains free and unhindered. Paul knows his time is limited at this stage. He could have easily been tempted to interpret his own temporal situation as a reflection of the power of the word. It's easy for us to say that the word is unbound, that God is powerful when we're watching lives being changed by the preaching of the word. When we, we see prison cells being thrown open in supernatural rays, like Paul saw. But to say, as Paul does, that God has not slowed in his mission, despite his own part in it coming to an end, is a result of Paul's vision of the faithfulness of God, irregardless of Paul's own circumstance. Paul writes to Timothy and says, my time is up but the Word of God is still at work. Some of us in the West, especially in America, where Christianity has played such a prominent role in our culture and history since before the inception of our country, we can watch this shift in our personal circumstances and be tempted to think that God is no longer at work. God isn't at work. Last month, the UK released its, the data from its 2021 census revealing that that after a 13% drop in identifying Christians in England, Wales and England are no longer considered Christian countries, as only 46% of their populations identify as such. With our own country facing similar trends, we can ask, is God still at work? Is the word bound? Meanwhile, at the dawn of the 20th century, in 1900, it was the Christian population of Africa was estimated at 9%. 9%. Despite incurring 1.8 million martyrs during the 20th century, the African church is estimated to be at 650 million Christians. That's over 50% of the fastest growing population in the world, the African continent. And among these are considered the most devout Christians on the planet. Just because our own personal or societal situation is not how we would prefer, certainly Paul would have preferred not to be in jail facing execution, does not mean that God is any less faithful or any less at work. The word of God is not bound. 
Which brings us to remember how else Christ is at work in the world. How else is he at work in the world? It's through the church, for the church, through the church, for the church. Verse 10, he says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul counts it as a privilege that his own role in God's salvation of the elect is his personal suffering. This temporal suffering pales in comparison to the eternal glory at stakes who believe this gospel he's suffering for. Paul is essentially saying, I'm willing to endure anything and everything if only I can make the gospel look more beautiful and more compelling by my own suffering. Despite bearing the weight of a man marked for death, being declared a criminal, being beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, abandoned by friends, bitten by snakes. When he places all those hardships on the scale and places the salvation of God's people on the other side, there's no contest. There's no contest. He said, I would endure all of this over to be a part of God saving his people through my suffering. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul states, I am filled with comfort. In all affliction, I am overflowing with joy. James says something similar when he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For the Christian, suffering is an occasion to present the gospel in all of its beauty. In all of its beauty. We can, and we should, make compelling arguments on behalf of the sake of the gospel. But how we handle suffering speaks far louder than any argument we could make with words. The joy the gospel gives in suffering is one of the ways God has designed to bring people to himself. Now, what's at stake in all this? What's at stake in all this? Read with me verse 11 through 13. He says, The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure... We will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What does he mean, thus saying, in verse 11 through 13? Paul utilizes this turn of phrase five times in his pastoral epistles. And it's used to articulate a, a kind of truism, a, a statement of common knowledge, like, like how we use, well, everybody knows. Um, it may have been a hymn or a sort of catechism of the early church, but Paul employs this summary of Christian belief to emphasize how the gospel of Jesus Christ turns our world upside down and to communicate what's at stake in our faith. Paul pairs our present choices and our present reality with future outcomes. The first one is, why does it matter how we live and die? Why does it matter how we live and die? He says, death and life. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. This is an exhortation, and it's a comfort. This goes a bit beyond simply reminding us of the promise of the resurrection that we discussed earlier. The language is similar to what we read in Romans 8, where he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You can live 
and not have life if you don't have Christ. And conversely, you can die and have life if you have Christ. You can live and not have life if you don't have Christ. But you can die and have life in Christ. No wonder pagans in the first century referred to Christians as the ones who turned the world upside down. That doesn't make sense, does it? doesn't seem like that works that way. But this is the message of the gospel. That the way of life is by dying to your sin, to yourself, whereas the way to death is living as though this life is all that we have and that you'll never die. So how do we endure this life? How do we live in this life? Why does it matter if we endure? That next phrase. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Just as the life of Christ models life through death, so does his life demonstrate this call to endure so that we might reign. In Philippians chapter 2, we read, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of the Father. Similarly, Jesus begins his sermon on the mount in Matthew ch chapter 5 with what we call the Beatitudes. And a couple of them say something like this. They say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. According to Christianity, the way to glory is through humility. The way to glory is through humility. None demonstrated that better than Christ, who humbled himself to come live a meek life so that he might endure death, the death on a cross. He was persecuted and had all kinds of evil said about him falsely. And because of that, all things in heaven and earth are given to him. One day Christ will be highly exalted. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess. And we who endure and suffer like he suffered for the things that he suffered for have an opportunity to reign with him, to share in this glory that is his. The way to reign is to endure. The way to reign is to endure. The way to glory is through humility. Now, the third phrase in this is uh, the denial phrase. If we deny him, he also will deny us. We ask, what does it matter? Why does it matter if I deny? The most obvious connection here to this phrase is found in Matthew chapter 10. Where Jesus says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father, who is in heaven. 
But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. What does it mean to deny Christ? My contention this morning would be that the one-off public denial of Jesus at a moment of weakness is actually less dangerous than a lifestyle of denial. A lifestyle of denial. Allow me to unpack that. Some of you might hear that warning against denial and go, I'm good. I've never, I would never, if somebody asked me if I'm a Christian or if I believe in Jesus, I would never deny that I was. So you say, that, that would never apply to me. But Peter, that's exactly what he did, didn't it? We'll talk about him more later. But he publicly denied that he, he knew Jesus at a pretty crucial time. And while that certainly was a sinful moment of faithlessness, the pattern of Peter's life, and especially when consider how he died, was one that acknowledged Christ as Lord and Savior. In the NIV, Titus 1.16 is translated, To those who are corrupted and who do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciousness are corrupted. They claim, listen to this, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Actions can't speak louder than words. You can actually, it's possible for you to go on church, go to church every Sunday, not along to the sermon, sing in worship, but still live a lifestyle in which you refuse to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and submit to him. And you reject Christ by your lifestyle. Even though you would articulate, you would say that I know Christ. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. I'm going to be honest with you this morning. The, the final two phrases here about deny and faithfulness in our passage are difficult. They'd be tough to teach in a setting like this, even if we had dedicated our entire time to just these two phrases. A danger here is sometimes we rush too quickly to a theological position without listening to the text. There's a warning here. And this warning is not some rhetorical flourish utilized by the early church. It wasn't simply to make this, sound phrase, this phrase sound nice. It was used to remind them of reality and to shape how they lived their life. Some of us grew up in environments where the preaching on Sunday morning was dominated by hell, fire, and brimstone. And others heard something like, as, as long as you pray a prayer, you'll never have to think about hell again. So we have this ditch, we could say on the right side, of fear. But just as dangerous, we have this ditch of the left side, which we would call cheap grace. Be cheap grace. To chart a path in between, I want us to ask, why is this here? And why are these placed together? There, Paul does not place these phrases next to one another in order for one to negate the other. Simply cancel each other out. They're both there. Both things are true. They are there for a reason. There is comfort knowing our hope is not our faithfulness. But there is real danger if we deny 
God, for he will deny us. We might reasonably ask, well, if it has to be one, which is it? It's both. It has to be both. If we come to the Bible asking, how far away can I get from God without being in any danger? That isn't the kind of question the scriptures seek to answer. In fact, if that's the question you're asking this morning, you may need to take this warning a little bit more seriously. That's exactly the kind of response that Paul is combating in Romans 6 when he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Scripture's posture is to encourage us to be as close to God as possible. Not simply to give us the minimum requirements to be called a child of God. Now, if your first response to hearing that warning is to say, I'm not doing enough, then you probably need to listen a little bit more closely to the next part, the next phrase. The fact that if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. This final phrase here. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abram. And for those of you who I I teach, your teens, um, if you say, hey, Jake talked about Genesis 15, they'd probably roll their eyes at you. Because I put this in Sunday school every chance I get. Um, That this, if I have a hobby horse in the text, uh, this is it. That this, this covenant that Abram makes, that God makes with Abram, is that Abram is told he, his people, his descendants, will inherit vast lands. And that his descendants will number greater than the stars in the sky. But when Abram is hearing this promise, he doesn't have any kids. It's kind of hard for your descendants to outnumber the stars when you don't have any descendants. So, He asks God reasonably, he says, Lord, how will this happen? How will I know that this will happen? So God tells him to go bring several animals. Bring a heifer, bring a goat, bring a ram, bring some birds. And to cut them in half. And to make a walkway in between them. And in our culture, uh, and so what happens next is he stays there all day and just leaves them. He He doesn't walk. He just separates them. And as he's dozing to sleep, God gives him this vision of the Spirit of God walking through those animals' remains. But Abram did not. All Abram did was separate them and keep the birds away. And for us, hearing that, it's like, man, that's kind of a weird thing, what's happening there. Well, it wouldn't have been super weird for those reading this in that context several thousand years ago, because in the ancient Near East, Uh, A typical contract was sealed something like this, whether a business contract or we might see something to this level. If if a a conquering king and a submissive king were to come together and they say, hey, we're done fighting, the conquering king would say, I'm going to make concessions to you. You can keep this land. You can still keep your title. I'm not going to take anything more from you. Uh, But then the conquered king would say, and here's the taxes that I'll owe you. I'll never lift a hand against you. They would agree to this in front of witnesses. And then they would do something like this, where they split these carcasses in two. And then they would both walk through them. And the reason they did that was if to say uh, a very visual uh, representation of, if I break my end of the deal, let this happen to me. Let this happen to me. 
There's weighty to it. But the Lord does not make a contract with Abram. He doesn't ask Abram to walk through it. What he does is he makes a covenant that's dependent entirely on God, not Abram. Which is fortunate because in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 16, uh, Abram and his wife still don't have any kids. And so they decide that they, 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 they have a moment of faithlessness where they don't trust God. And so they're well, God's going to give us descendants. He hasn't done it yet. We should just probably get our own. So they, they, they scheme and they disobey God. And Abram sleeps with one of his servants and she has a child by him. Which is not the way that was supposed to go. But what happens? If that had been a contract, Abram would have been something like torn into. God would have cast him off. Hey, you broke your end of the deal. But that's not what happened. God didn't make a contract with Abram. Now, there were consequences and a hardship, not just for Abram and Sarah, but for their whole descendants because of that mistake. Life got harder for them, but God did not abandon them. He didn't let him go. He didn't say, I'll find somebody else. He stuck with him. God does not desert Abram for a faithless mistake. We could say something similar about the nation of Israel, whom nearly every generation had periods of faithlessness, which God judged. He would bring judgment on them, and then he would bring them back. He would welcome them back. He would deliver them. Or we could think of David, who made some colossal mistakes, a man after God's own heart. Colossal mistakes that had consequences. But both David and Abraham are mentioned in Hebrews 11 as examples of what a faithful life looks like. Far from perfect, but they were faithful. Now I'm so grateful we have so many characters in Scripture who embody and illustrate the complexities that we see in this text. Peter is, is another perfect case study to see how denial and faithlessness and the faithfulness of God are at work. Peter in John 18 denies that he knows Jesus. And after refusing to believe, Jesus told him this would happen, he refuses to believe that he would do something like that. And after Jesus' resurrection, Christ comes to Peter and assures him that he will endure until the end. He said that his death will be one that glorifies God. But Jesus follows that word of assurance, that promise of you will make it to the end. You will endure and your death will be glorifying. But he follows that word of assurance with a command. He says, that will happen. Now, Peter, follow me. Make sure you follow me. In a similar way, our text this morning is a warning of not to live a life of denial. It's a comfort that God is faithful despite our faithlessness and an exhortation to make sure you fight to endure until the end. Let's pray. Father God, we're grateful to gather together. We're thankful for your word and that your word is at work. We're grateful for the fact that Christ is a representative of how you keep your promises, that you are a faithful God. 
Father, we ask that you would not give us a spirit of fear and guilt, that we would not live in a, in a, in a shadow of fear, but neither should we live as though the grace that you've given us is a license. You would help us stay close to you, that you would give us the strength to take this warning seriously, that you would comfort us by your spirit, and you would help us to endure until the end and to remember who you are, what you've done, and what you're doing. All these things we ask in the name of your son. Amen.